All right, Pastor Dave, he's awesome. Well, good morning, Waukee Community Church. It is a huge pleasure for me to be with you guys this morning, and uh, this is going to be fun because I'm looking forward to sharing just a couple Dave stories. I don't know if you guys want to hear a couple Dave stories. He, he mentioned the goldfish, and so I'm kind of curious uh, what aspect of the goldfish story that he was referring to because um, I know that he did this event where there was bobbing for goldfish. Was that pretty much what it was? There was this huge fish tank, and they had it on a, on a table. And so the people would, uh, all the students, you know, it was like a competition. Who could get more goldfish in their mouth and spit them out? So it was like literally bobbing for goldfish. I don't know if Dave mentioned this part of it. Um, they were Walmart goldfish. And so I don't know if you guys are familiar with Walmart goldfish, but there's about half of the goldfish in the tank maybe are dead, right? And so that's what, that's what the bobbing for goldfish was. It was like one point for a dead one, because they don't even really like try to get away. Five points for a live fish. And so you guys are thinking, that's the kind of youth pastor. Yeah, that, that's the kind of youth pastor Pastor Dave was. Um, uh, kids with dead goldfish in their mouth, uh, spitting them out, getting points. And uh, it, was, it was awesome. So uh, the thing is that you guys um, probably know Pastor Dave more as a, the senior pastor, but uh, I had the opportunity to know Pastor Dave as a youth pastor, and I thought uh, there's, that meant a couple things. He had this uh, student ministry event that, that everybody would come out to where they had this big lard wall, and the kids would have to scale the lard wall, and they'd get all like covered in, in lard, grease, head to toe. And it's like, how do you even get that off of you? You don't. You don't get the lard off of you from the lard wall. You know, uh, there was another event that we had that, at ICC, and I don't know, did he ever tell any of you guys about the toilet, the infamous toilet? No? See, uh, there's a reason he didn't tell you about the toilet, and he's going to hang his head when, we, when, when he finds out all of the church now knows about So Dave went out uh, to the, this uh, kind of like a surplus store, and he bought a brand new toilet, and it was just nice porcelain throne, you know, and then he took a tennis ball and he shoved it down in the throat of it, and he siliconed it in. And then we thought it would be so cool to have all the students bobbing for things in the toilet. So we filled the toilet up with Mountain Dew, and then we'd throw like, like baby roots in there and have students bobbing in Mountain Dew for baby roots. And it, was, it, was, it was so awesome. Every single time we pulled the toilet out, we had parent calls, and uh, they'd start yelling at me about it. I'm like, it wasn't me. I didn't, I didn't do it, because I was an intern at the time. And um, uh, we had all kinds of fun things, and you guys are probably thinking, well, where's the spiritual stuff for Pastor Dave at Indianola Community Church? Well, there was some spiritual stuff. Uh, Pastor Dave had the opportunity, uh, and I guess I had the opportunity to be baptized by Pastor Dave, and it was a really, really cool event. You know, I was thinking about what baptism meant, and I'd come to faith in Christ, and I'm following I'm a part of a community of believers, which is an amazingly important thing to be a part of a community of believers, and so uh, Dave, through Dave's ministry, kept sicking students on me to pursue me, and that was awesome uh, because I saw the love of Christ through that, ultimately. But uh, I'm reading in the Bible, and I'm finding out these people do this weird thing called baptism, and they're going under water, and I think I want to be baptized. I want to make a public profession of my faith. And so uh, Dave's like, well, okay, you know, when do you want to do it? I said, well, we're going to do this student ministry retreat, and I think it would be so fun to uh, be baptized kind of like biblically amongst your peers and make the profession of faith amongst peers that I'm following Jesus now. And Dave's like, awesome. Okay, we'll do this on the retreat. Well, 
um, we're, we're down in like Tennessee. We're going on this retreat. He talked to the elders and the elders said, sure, that would be great. <clears throat> so we, we go down and uh, we're at this hotel and Dave's like, tonight's the night. I'm like, really? Yeah, tonight's the night. You're going to get baptized tonight. Okay, that'd be awesome. So Pastor Dave ba- baptized me in a hot tub in a Ramada Inn. <laughs> that was the glorious baptism that I experienced. And, uh, I mean, he did it really professionally. I'll, I'll never forget uh, standing by the side of the hot tub and him saying, turn off the jets, because there was a student over by the wall with the little gauge. He's like, yeah, there, tur- turn them off. So the jets got turned off, and it was cool. There was a bunch of families swimming, and then the students all kind of circled all around. There was a lot of us, and uh, I got to share my testimony, and there's all these families like kind of swimming going, what in the world is going on in the Ramada Inn, you know? But uh, Pastor Dave really did have a huge influence and impact on my life. Uh, the reality is that he, he got me involved with my first Bible study I was ever involved with, the first prayer group that I ever uh, experienced, you know, the first missions trip, uh, the first youth retreat. He gave me opportunities. Uh, He shared the gospel with me, and he had many others sharing the gospel with me, and he taught me how to share the gospel and how to disciple and what it means to ask somebody um, if they want to follow Christ personally. He gave me the opportunity to lead. Um, and, And if Factually, if it wasn't for his influence, I wouldn't be uh, with you guys here this morning. So I am in debt to Pastor Dave, and anything that I think that God is uh, seeing fruit from my ministry will be attributed to Pastor Dave's account, and I really believe that because uh, he is an awesome man, which you guys know. Today, we're going to kick off this series in in Esther. You're going to be in Esther for four weeks, so this week and three more. Esther is an amazing book. It's written in a narrative style. Uh, Today's going to be kind of a different type of preaching, even for me, because what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to be given all kinds of background and historical context because there's a lot that's going on in the book of Esther right in the first few verses when you very first jump in. I'm going to encourage all of you guys to, in the weeks to come, read Esther for yourself. Grab your Bible, open it up, and read. I know some of you guys uh, may have just a little uh, apprehension to opening up the Bible yourself because you think, man, every time I open up the Bible and I read some stuff, it's confusing, and I feel worse about it because I don't even know what's going on. Well, uh, what I think is kind of funny about uh, us reading the Bible is oftentimes we think that we could just open it jump in, read a few verses, and automatically know what's going on. If I was having a conversation with my wife, and man, we're like deep into it, and you just walk into our kitchen, should I expect you to know everything that's going on if you heard one sentence? No. No, or if you're in a movie, or you show up to a movie late, and your buddies are all sitting there, and you're about 10, 15 minutes late, and you come in, and you kind of squeeze in, and you sit down, the first thing you say to your buddies is what? What what happened? What, What did I miss? When you take your Bible and you just split it and start to read and you're like, oh, I knew it. I'm a dummy. I don't, I don't get it. You walked into the movie and you just sat down and you're expecting to know automatically what's going on. It's not like that, right? It's not like that. So what we're going to do with Esther, being that you're going to be in it for a few weeks, we're going to take a little time and we're going we're to camp on this so that we can understand what, what in the world is going on here because there is something very, very cool going on. Um, as we go back to uh, Esther, you know, there's different types of preaching and different styles, uh, obviously. One of those things is that we take biblical truth and we try to understand that biblical truth and we bring it into a present context and then we say, we, we try to communicate it in this present context. So we might even, like I said with the, with the movie theater, it's kind of like this, it's a present context. What we're going to do, we're going to take all of you guys, we're going to go back in time, 
We're going to take a modern audience and take it into a historical context and understand what's going on back, uh, back in right around the 480 B.C. So it's going to be kind of fun. I think it's going to be kind of cool. We're going to be learning about kings and queens and golden scepters and extravagance and indulgences, ancient traditions, king's edicts, politics, eunuchs, glorious banquets. There's all of this ancient things going on in the book of Esther. And so uh, we're going to jump into that today. You know, the thing that is interesting about Esther is that God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. And so uh, if you're a critic of certain things, kind of like I could be kind of critical, I think what is, what is a book in the Bible doing that doesn't even mention God? The book of Esther doesn't mention God's name at all. And so uh, I think that this is a really awesome book for us to study because what we can do then is uh, as, as you read the book of Esther, you're kind of left with this question. Do you think that all of these things are just happening by kind of r- random uh, consequence? Or do we see God in this narrative? Do we believe that God is author over all of it? Because he's not given the direct glory and we're left to just like today, look around at scenarios and events around us and say, is God in this at all? Or is this just all random? Does it just kind of move and happen on its own? And so in the book of Esther, you're not gonna get the glorious and then God did this awesome thing. That's not gonna happen. Instead, you're just gonna continue to read through the narrative and you're gonna start to learn this really cool story and you're left to consider, is, is God in this thing at all? And uh, so I think as a modern audience, this is gonna be very fun for us to do. Uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther. Uh, it's after First and Second Kings, Chronicles, es- Ezra, Nehemiah. Uh, if you get to Job or Psalms, you're too far. Proverbs, you're too far. Um, and this morning, before we get into the text, I'm just gonna take a pause and pray for us this morning. Lord God, uh, you are awesome and holy. And Father God, we open up your word to learn more about you. God, in a book, uh, in your scripture where your name is not mentioned, we know, Lord, in your providence, you included this in your scriptures for our growth, our edification, Lord, to understand more about who you are. So, Lord, we are looking for you. Father, I pray if there's someone even in this room this morning who doesn't know you personally, Lord, you would start to speak to them through your word and through this awesome body of believers. Father, I pray for uh, Pastor Dave as he preaches at Indianola Community Church. God, it's so good to be a part of a body that is uh, bigger than one church, Lord. You are working majestically all around the earth this morning, Lord, and we give you praise and glory. We thank you for that. In your holy name, Lord, amen. Amen. Well, we're in Esther chapter 1. We're going to read verses uh, 1 through 5 this morning as we kick off. It says this, Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned in Ethiopia, uh, or from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa, In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his providences being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for 180 days and six months. That is a party. When these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days 
for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden, in the king's palace. If you guys are using your version notes, uh, I had hit, some, hit Dave up with some stuff. This first kind of section I've titled, The King's Glory. The King's Glory. You know, uh, I like to pause on some of this because the fact is that the Bible is real, and so we have this opportunity to learn from the Bible. And when we hear about kings and we hear about parties and banquets, we can take it to the bank. This stuff happened. It really happened. It's not just like, oh, kind of cut all of the story narrative to the side so that we can get like, God, what do you have for me today? God is building up this narrative for us to teach us what he has for us. This Ahasuerus had the largest empire the world had ever seen up to that point. This is the largest empire in the ancient world up to that point. I think that that's amazing. Uh, Time frame is about 2,500 years ago. This Ahasuerus reigned for 21 years. Some of your Bibles may translate Ahasuerus as Xerxes. And, and if you know much about history, you know King Xerxes was a really big deal in the ancient world. King Xerxes, as we just found out, ruled over the largest empire that the world had seen up to five or 200, 480 B.C., and so there have been a lot of kings and kingdoms. And if you look in your Bible, there's been a lot of stuff that's already happened. This guy was epic. We don't use that word lightly. He was epic. Ahasuerus is his Persian name. His Greek name is King Xerxes. The size of his kingdom was from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces. If, if I were honest with you guys, man, I read through this stuff and my eyes glaze over pretty quick. And so it was fun for me to kind of stop and be like, well, how, how big was this kingdom and what was this all about? Let me read for you what the modern day kingdom of King Xerxes was at the beginning of Esther. Modern day countries of Iran, Turkey, Iraq, Kuwait, Syria, Jordan, Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, Afghanistan, all the significant population centers of ancient Egypt, as far as Eastern Libya, Macedonia, the Black Sea coastal regions of Bulgaria, Romania, Ukraine, Russia, all of Armenia, Georgia, uh, Azerbaijan, parts of the North Caucasus, much of Central Asia. This empire was so big, it, it was approximately 3 million square miles. This is the king that's being referenced at the beginning of Esther. And so we don't just read over that lightly. You got to realize the influence and the magnitude of this man, right? What King Xerxes says goes. King Xerxes ruled 2,500 years ago, this empire. You would just say King Xerxes rules the world. You'd say, that's kind of a big statement, but of the known world, it was most of it. There were kingdoms outside of it. They didn't really amount to much. King Xerxes ruled the world. Uh, the, a little bit more context than kind of what's going on here. Some of his titles included King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Anybody else you know in the Bible that has that name? King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's how people approached Xerxes. He was also, uh, he was also known as the king, of, uh, the king of the four corners of the world, King of Persia, King of Media, King of Babylon. He held those crowns all at the same time. Before him was King Darius. When we look at the first couple verses that we read, he's only in year three of his reign, right? 
And so it's like, well, how did this guy get such a big kingdom? He inherited it from his, from his father, Darius. At one point, Darius wanted to expand his kingdom even greater. And so he went up into battle against Greece. And as he went to battle Greece, um, the Greeks were all these independent city-states you'll learn in your secular history. And so uh, they kind of had their own armies as city-states. And when people attacked them, they'd come and bind together and try to come in one accord to fight an army that would be as vast as King Xerxes' army, an army that had uh, approximately three million soldiers, which I think is just absolutely insane. The United States Army today, not just the army, but all armed forces, right now is 1.4 million active duty. So Xerxes' army was double, more than double the manpower uh, than our army today. This guy was epic. It was huge. And when Darius tried to battle uh, the, these Greeks, what ended up happening was kind of a famous battle in what we call uh, the Battle of Marathon, whereas the Greeks were winning the battle because this Persian army was pushing up into Greece. Uh, the Greeks all bound together, free Greeks, and they all bound together and they pushed uh, Darius back down. And as winning, one of the Greeks ran from Marathon all the way to Athens, 26 miles, and that's where we get the word a marathon, right, from this battle. And what, I, what I'm wanting to do is bolster up. This was a real event. These were real times. This is the setup for Esther. All this was happening in the capital city of Susa, in the Persian Empire, uh, in, in Xerxes' Winter Palace. And what was going on? Why did he have this big party, you should be asking? What's the deal with the big, crazy party? The deal is that He was gathering all of his military leaders from all around the globe at that point, right? From all areas of the world. And they were coming together into Susa to have this big party because Xerxes wanted everyone to know how powerful he was. And so the guy kind of had a big head. He he had people call him king of kings and lord of lords. And so he, he gathers everyone together and he has all of his military leaders, political leaders. They're all in Susa. There's a massive party where basically anything goes. We'll read about that here in a minute. And um, he's pulling all of this together so that the, the world would know when he goes against the Greeks, he's going to win. And he's going to win big. Uh, let's, let's read the next kind of passage of verses uh, 6 through 9. Verses 6 through 9, read this. It says, this was, the, this was the party. There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple. Linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold. Silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done according to the law, for there was no compulsion, for the king uh, had given orders to each official of his household that should do according to the desires of each person. And Queen Vashti also had a banquet for the women in the palace, which belonged to to King Ahasuerus. So just remember, we're going back in time. Think about this party that's going on. See, purple, a lot of times we think of purple in the Bible and we think, oh, that just meant royalty. It meant royalty for a reason. The reason that purple meant royalty is because only royalty could afford purple. 
It was kind of like some, today we wear brands and stuff like that. We're like, oh, that brand equals a lot of money. I can't believe that person dropped so much money for that shirt or those shoes or that purse, right? In the ancient world, that was just purple. Purple was very expensive. It, take a lot, it took a lot of time and effort to collect the kind of small shells and stuff that they'd crush and use to make purple. And so this dude's curtains were purple. It's like, yeah, yeah, welcome to my place. The one word that I kept struggling with, I'm like, what is this? Pof, pofier. It's a purple, like, crystal that was ground into the floor, along with the marble, along with the precious stones, along with the mother of pearl. So it's like, when you guys think about mother of pearl, I had a pocket knife a long time ago when I was a kid that my dad gave me. There's like my grandpa's and it had mother of pearl in it. It's like, hey, that's, that's, that's worth a lot of money. You got to be careful with that little pocket knife. This dude walked on that, mother of pearl. When you came to King Xerxes' palace, you walked in the door, you knew right away this was royalty unlike anything you'd experienced before. It was amazing. His couches were made of gold. So it's like, it says gold and silver in the text. You walk in, you're like, hey, welcome to the party. Welcome to the banquet. Would you like something to drink? Yeah, sure. Here's a golden goblet, a golden chalice to drink your drink out of. And they weren't all the same. You know, when you're producing things, it's easy to make like, okay, we'll make this one like this. Okay, make 400 of these goblets. It wasn't like that in King Xerxes' palace. It was like, I want every one of them to be different. I want them all the same. Make them different. So you'd walk in. Here's your golden goblet. Yeah, I know you're walking on precious stones. It's a little bit different. You'll get used to it, I promise. Go ahead and find a seat. They're golden couches. It's incredible. I would hasten to say none of us have seen anything like King Xerxes' palace and what the, the, uh, his, his people were encountering as they walked around his palace. Marble pillars, drinking the fine wine. You know, when it says that according to the law, when it says they were, they were encouraged to drink according to the law, the Persians, when they drank, they drank like crazy. I mean, it was, they would party. They would really throw it down. But the catch was, the king was the king of kings and lord of lords. So if he's not drinking, you're not drinking. If the king is drinking, you are drinking. There's no question about it. It's like, no, nah, I'm good. No, you're not good. You're going to take one. The king is drinking. That's how it went. Well, King Xerxes kind of switched it up. He says, hey, man, you drink however much you want. This is going to be open bar for everyone in the palace, for everyone you drink as much as you want. If you see me stop or me go to sleep, you just carry on, all right? If you see me drink and you don't want to, you don't have to. And so uh, this was just kind of the atmosphere in the palace at this time for the setup of our biblical text this morning that you guys are going to be in for a few weeks. Uh, what happens next? Vashti is called. The queen is called to the king. And uh, if you do much studying on this and you kind of start to get into it, and you're like, wow, this seems kind of like a crazy story that Ben's talking about today. And you actually start reading into it and looking into it. What you'll notice is uh, there's a lot of scholars and so forth. They have a problem with this Queen Vashti and what kind of happened here because she says no to the king. The king says at the very end, he has six months of this party, open bar, wildness, right? And then to capstone that, seven days of drinking and partying. And the seventh day, Xerxes says, bring Vashti in here. Bring her in here in, his, in her crown. And some people say, well, that doesn't know. We don't know if that means like only wearing her crown 
We don't know, you know, what the real context was. It says Vashti was having her own party, to which some of us would be like, oh, that's nice. The guys are kind of hanging out in the man cave, and the girls are kind of doing their own thing. No, it wasn't really like that. They took all the, the, the guards and everybody's uh, who's politically affiliated into one room, and the, the ladies would all leave so that the other ladies could come in, if you get what I'm saying. This was King Xerxes' empire and what was going on, so the women were in their place doing whatever they wanted. And he calls on uh, the queen to come and parade around. He says, I want to show off her beauty. I want everyone to know what kind of woman I've had for myself. And she says, nah, I ain't going to do it. King of kings, Lord of lords, golden couches, I ain't coming. And so uh, immediately all the, the, the wise men and the officials and, you know, they get all nervous. And they start going, oh, man, what, what are we going to do? King Xerxes, you got to do something about this. Uh, they started to get afraid. This is going to be the first women's liberation movement. And they come to him, and they, they literally say, they're like, if you let Vashti say no to you, then all of our wives are going to start saying no to us, and then it'll go throughout the kingdom that Vashti doesn't listen to the king. And this is the first women's liberation movement. We don't want to be at the epicenter of this. You've got to do something. And so what uh, Xerxes says is, fine, uh, I will banish the queen from my presence. She is not allowed in front of the king anymore, and um, she's banished. And they're all like, oh, great. Then this big uh, catastrophe has been averted. And then what happens is these guys say, well, you're going to need a new queen. Uh, You're going to need a new queen for the empire, this massive empire. And so they start this royal beauty pageant. And we're going to get into the royal beauty pageant in just a minute because what our biblical text kind of skips as it jumps into uh, chapter 2 and moves through some of the beauty pageant, what we realize is, uh, remember, King Xerxes is having this party for his huge military campaign. He wants to expand his kingdom. He says, my dad couldn't beat the Greeks, the whole battle of marathon thing. I'm going to beat the Greeks with my great power and my strength, and you saw my party, I can really bring it down. I've got three million soldiers. We are going to do this thing. So after he dethrones Vashti, he goes to war with the Greeks. Uh, the ancient uh, philosopher and historian Herodotus, who's often called the father of history, records this battle. There's roughly, he records a million Persians with 10,000 elite soldiers called the Immortals. And uh, some of you guys may have seen the movie 300. I would not encourage you to see that, but this is a telling of this story recorded in your Bible text. So he had these immortals. Why were they called the immortals? They had 10,000 immortals. It was like his elite forces, kind of his Navy SEALs. He had 10,000 of them. If he traveled around, they would travel with him. So it was like a big deal. Nobody was going to take out Xerxes. But the the Greeks knew him as the immortals because every time you killed one of them, another one would just pop up in their place. And so when they thought about the immortals, they're like, there is no beating the immortals. There is so many of them. It, it, it struck terror throughout the ancient world. Because remember, King Xerxes ruled the world. And so uh, Persia is going to advance north. The Greeks kind of start pulling together against this uh, roughly a million. Modern historians would say maybe 300,000. Essentially, it's more than they could accurately count of the Persian army, uh, the Greeks show up with 5,200 guys at the Battle of Thermopylae. Xerxes leading the Persians on his great throne with all of his immortals and the great Leonidas and his fav- famous 300 Spartans are leading the Greeks. So this is the, the Battle of Sparta, you know, and this huge 
this, this huge historic thing. This is happening in Esther. This is what's going on. And what we find out is that the Persians actually do defeat the Greeks. The casualties of the Greeks were about 4,000. King Leonidas, literally at one point, uh, there's a, a Greek defector that shows the Persians kind of a back door around their bottleneck, what they'd had in these hills and mountains. And so they, when he finds out about it, he relieves the Greeks that don't want to stay and fight. So the 5,200, bunch of them leave. 4,000 Greeks die and about 20,000 Persians. So you know the Greeks were really stomping on the Persians as they were rolling in. This is where we get the phrase Molon Labe, where uh, the Persian army, I mean, you could think 300,000 troops. If you study this, you'll find there was a sea battle. There was a battle on land. It was so huge. And they're all coming on and, the, and they say, put down your swords to the Greeks. And uh, King Leonidas says, come and take them. In other words, it doesn't matter what you guys throw at us. We're not just bowing down to your Persian army. We're free men. And we're not going to be a part of your massive empire, no matter who you are and what you say or do. Xerxes won that battle, but a year later, he was defeated by the Greeks. And uh, it's kind of, kind of a neat thing. So what we've got is uh, Xerxes in this banquet, Queen Vashti being dethroned, the Greek war that's going on. And the next thing that we move into in Esther chapter 2 is what I'm calling the cousin's shame. We're going to be introduced to two more characters in this large story, Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai and Esther. So we're going to be reading in uh, chapter 2 verses 5 through 7 as we just move through quickly this story. It says, Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shemael, the son of Kish, the, ben- the Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, uh, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. I know when we read these names, everybody's like, so what? Don't get it. That's okay. Just keep going. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, right? This is all the stuff that we skip over and sometimes we go, oh, wait, it meant something. Like it meant something. In verse 7, he says, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. She has two names. Hadassah is her Jewish name. Esther is her Persian name. So she took on a new name in her empire that she was a part of. His uncle's daughter, for she had no father and no mother. She was an orphan. Now the young lady was beautiful in form and face. She was good looking. We would say Esther was hot. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her in as his own daughter. So a cousin, some people would say roughly 15 to maybe 20 years older than Esther, a cousin took Esther in when her parents died. And Esther, what we learn from the scripture, she was very beautiful. Well, we need to ask the question, uh, why did Esther, what were the Jews doing in the Persian Empire? What were they even doing there? And if we look a little bit deeper than Xerxes and Darius, we go back to King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire came in and he captured all of the Jews, right? He overcame Jerusalem. And uh, if you just kind of tag down these names, you can start looking through your scripture. So we're going to bring this into why does this even matter in our life uh, at the end of this. It's not just like head knowledge, man. We've got to put it into practice in our life. We're going to get there. So the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, came in. He captured everybody. It was really customary to take... The, the real elites in a kingdom, in this case the Jewish kingdom, and bring them into the Babylonian kingdom and marry them with different women. And what that did is it made peace. 
Like if Shar, my wife Shar, and her uh, family was the king and queen of a certain empire, and I'm of another, and we get married, I'm not going to fight her, her family, right? And so this is, what, this is what the kings would do in these large empires. Well, we start to get, uh, as we read through the Bible, we get stories about Daniel in the lion's den, that's Nebuchadnezzar. Right, in the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's, that's Nebuchadnezzar. After Nebuchadnezzar was King Cyrus, and this is important for us to understand, what was Esther doing in this kingdom when King Cyrus, two kings before Darius, three kings before Xerxes, had freed all the Jews in the empire? He said, you guys are free. You can go back to your empire. You can read it in Daniel. Cyrus says, hey, Daniel, you guys can, you're free. You guys can go. It's not right for us to hold you as slaves here. You can go back to your empire. You can rebuild. And, uh, and, and they, some do, and some don't. Uh, you get Ezra. Ezra went back, and he rebuilt the temple, but the walls weren't built. 30 years after we read in Esther, Nehemiah comes right before Esther in your Bible, but it actually happens 30 years after Esther. 30 years after, after Esther, Nehemiah goes, and he rebuilds the walls, and it's, uh, it's a, a, kind of a really cool thing. Um, and so we're just going to jump back into, the, so we'll go back into the text. What do we got going? Esther and uh, Mordecai are kind of debuted, and then it moves into uh, the women's beauty. They end up having this beauty pageant, and uh, they start, they bring women from everywhere in the empire, and all the most beautiful women. This empire was roughly 50 million people, so half of those would be women, 25 million women. You know, if you take the older women and the younger women out, and you just take, you're talking millions of women parse them down to a few hundred, and those women get to be paraded in front of the king. You know, if you've seen the Christian movie, One Night with a King, uh, this is the story of Esther, and they come in, and they, they kind of really fancify and glorify that. It's not accurate, I don't think, historically at all. They, like, fall in love, and they're dancing, and it's great, and it's like, no, man, this is Xerxes. It's like, let me try you out, done, let me try, done, and he's just going through the women, but it says in our text that something about Esther, he liked Esther, and uh, Esther was beautiful, and so he invites Esther to become the queen of the entire empire. Uh, and we're going to wrap this up here. This is what I want you guys to start to consider when we look at this huge narrative. And Ben, why do you take all this time with the story? And what's the big deal of all of this stuff? God isn't mentioned yet in this text, and he's not going to be mentioned in this book, right? But what we just saw happen is historically in this grand narrative of the Bible that God has given to us, he just took an emperor of the largest empire that the world had ever seen to that point, that our secular history and texts confirm all over with Marathon and the Spartans and, and all these battles and empires, and we find out that the king of the largest empire ever ended up getting a queen that was a poor Jewish girl, a poor Jewish orphan girl, and she becomes the queen of the largest empire that the world had ever seen. I think that's amazing. I think that's amazing. And we could say, wow, man, that's a really huge coincidence. Or we could say, maybe there's a God in this who's orchestrating his people times and epics, and he's going to do some things to keep his people safe, and he's going to do some things to bring his glory and you could look in and say that there is a king of kings and lord of lords on the earth and his name is Xerxes and he has golden thrones and we can all sit in them too and he'll give us golden goblets and he'll invite us in and wine and dine us and he'll expand his kingdom and he has the military strength and he's got the immortals. 
Or we could start to consider the God of gods, the king of kings, the ruler of the universe, who is the Lord God Almighty, right? Creator of heavens and earth, greater than all other kings. Kind of the end of uh, chapter four, we're going through two, one and two today, the, the end of chapter two, I'm sorry, uh, reads, reads this. It's, it's what we call the, the traitor's death. This is important. It'll come along later on in the story. It says, Mordecai saves the king is the title on my Bible. But verse 21, chapter 2 says this. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thin and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther... And Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. So she says, hey, these guys are going to kill you, king. And then he, she, and he says, how do you know about that? Well, this guy Mordecai told me, and we know Mordecai was the one who raised Esther. Now, when the plot was investigated and was found to be so, they were both hanged. Big, big Thin and Teresh were hanged. As it is written in the book of Chronicles in the king's presence. The book of Chronicles, it's important for us to know, the Persians wrote down everything. We've got all kinds of history about this stuff. It, it all literally happened. So here's Esther. Mordecai is standing around the gate. We, we hear, if you read through the text, that Esther, uh, Mordecai used to hang out around the gate all the time to see Esther and to try to talk with her and see if she's okay in there and uh, see what's going on. So here's the deal. How can we apply this to our lives? How can we apply this to our lives? It's a big story with a lot of history. I don't usually go into all of this, but today I thought it would be fun. Here's the deal. Uh, we want to be Xerxes. If we were honest in our day and age, and we look at King Xerxes and we think about his power and his might, the great King Xerxes, we'd say, man, it'd be kind of cool to be King Xerxes. Yeah, to be honest, it would be cool to at least be a part of his kingdom and all of his wealth and honor. No, the magnitude of his power. Maybe some of the girls here today would say, man, that'd be kind of cool. I mean, Queen Esther, it's a rags to riches story. And every time she's mentioned, they talk about how beautiful she is. And then thousands of women, yet millions of women, she was the most beautiful. And I think that would be so great to be Esther. And we kind of fixate on what the world is offering because Xerxes had, believe me, everything that the world had to offer. We want to have the power and the might and the wealth we want to be like Xerxes. But I, I encourage you guys to consider when God, Lord God Almighty, looked down at Xerxes, what did God think? Right? We've got to kind of put this in perspective. Because I'll be honest, I think Xerxes, man, that sounds amazing. Like a floor of like diamonds and stuff. That would be incredible. When God looks down, he saw a prideful, <laughs> ridiculous pagan who is terrible, wicked king, abusing women, abusing power, usurping freedom, conquering the world, flexing his arms and puffing his chest. And the Lord God looks down from heaven and says, that's disgusting. I'm repulsed by King Xerxes. His pride and arrogance is it's disgusting to me. God wants us to be like Jesus. God doesn't want us to be like Xerxes. God doesn't want us to desire Xerxes' power and wealth and might. God wants us to be like our King Jesus. It says Xerxes was prideful, but Jesus was humble. 
Xerxes objectified women, but Jesus honored women. Xerxes sat on a throne. Jesus came down off of his throne to serve the world. Xerxes gave the opportunity for Esther to join his kingdom, and that kingdom has come to an end. Jesus invites us to join his kingdom, and that kingdom will never end. Xerxes called himself the king of kings and lord of lords, and Xerxes is dead. Xerxes is no more. Jesus Christ is the king of kings and lord of lords, and he has ascended on high, sits at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning alive today. We serve such an amazing king, our king Jesus. What else can we apply to the story? We want to stay comfortable. Mordecai and Esther stayed in Susa, the Persian uh, capital, and they were comfortable. When all the other Jews thought, man, this is a good time for us to go back to our home country and rebuild our walls and reestablish our identity, when we read through Esther, we find time and time again Mordecai saying, oh, and by the way, don't tell anybody that you're a Jew, which equals don't tell anybody about the God that you serve. Don't tell anybody. Just keep, keep that under your hat for right now. We don't want to tell, we don't want to let that cat out of the bag. Not now. You're about to be queen. Like, we want to stay where it's comfortable. We want to stay where it's not awkward. And God is sometimes asking us to do something very different. We like to stay in the places that we already know. We like to hang out with the friendships that we've had for years. We like to stay where it's comfortable. And Esther and, ne- and uh, uh, Esther very much wanted to continue to be right where it was comfortable, her and Mordecai both. What does God want? God wants us to be ambassadors for his kingdom. The highest calling that we could ever have is to be ambassadors for the king of kings and lord of lords. It's the highest possible calling. You know, um, I've got some, some different slides for the takeaway. Those are going to be on the version notes as well. Uh, I guess we'll roll through them really quickly. It's this. What is your glory? What is it in your life that you think about if this was taken away? I couldn't live life the way that I do now. It would be over for me. What's your glory? How about this? How do you rule your kingdom? What do people say around you? What are you known for? Xerxes was known for his power and might. Xerxes was known for his appetite for women. Jesus is known for being selfless and kind. How do you rule your kingdom? How about this? What happens uh, when you're not where you should be? God has called you to be somewhere, and I'm asking this morning, are you listening to that? God wants you to follow him closely. But what happens when you're not who you should be, when you continue to hide who you are, and you don't tell people like, oh, it's kind of crazy to be the Christian thing, or to tell people about the God that I serve. This is weird. It's a little bit weird. We're not to hide who we are or what we're all about. We're going to close this morning with what, uh, just a, the gospel message. And the gospel is this, the king of kings and lord of lords, greater than Xerxes, has invited all people of every nation and every tongue, of every gender, of every age group and demograph to be a part of his kingdom. And he says this, that your sin has separated you from this holy God and king of kings. But the Bible says that God loved us so much that he came down off of his throne and he entered into human history in the form of a man. And he said, I will pay the penalty for your sins. Your sins separate you, but you don't have to stay separated. I've paid the penalty. And that's what happens when we trust in Jesus. We trust that going to heaven, we go there not because we're good, not because we're right or good enough, and we skate it in because Jesus was good enough. Jesus was right, and God paid the price, and we're just grateful people. And so let's pray this morning and 
uh, we'll conclude. Lord God, I thank you so much for your story. (laughs) Thank you for what you do, Lord. And when we look into human history, we're in awe of the things and the epics that have happened over time. When we look into your word, Lord, we are in awe of who you are and what you've done over time. And God, I'm just begging that if there is someone here this morning that doesn't know you in that way, that that needs you to be king of kings and lord of lords in their life, that is trying so desperately to be good, and they're realizing in their heart they are not good, and they need help, that God, we would all repent and turn to you and confess our sin and know that King Jesus has come and he has done it. He's paid the price and we can come to you, Lord, new. We pray this with great gratitude for what you've done, Lord. We're so happy to be in a family here in Waukee Community Church where we can know each other and love each other despite our differences and our issues because you have shown us forgiveness and you have shown us a contrite heart, Lord, and you've shown us grace and so we can be gracious and forgiving and kind because of you, Lord because of you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.